Thanks so much for checking out this podcast from Anchor Church Southwest. We really hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources, or info, please check out our website, anchorchurch.com.au. Um, hey guys, my name's James. If I haven't met before, I'm one of the pastors here. And like I know I said, I'll be kind of closing out the kind of part one of our Across the Year Parable series. We've been jumping in and out of the parables in the school holidays, um, but man, I'm pumped. I, I, I've been thinking about this passage for a few weeks now. I actually preached it a few weeks ago um, at our at another church that we're a part of, Anchor City. We're a part of a family of churches, if you don't know. Um, I've just really been like, this, just been sitting in my heart, this passage, the past few weeks, just thinking about like, what is the beauty of the gospel. So I'm really excited to be able to just unpack it once more. But I'm going to pray again that God helps me do this, and then we'll see what he has for us today. And Father, we... We thank you so much that you're a God who, who loves us, who knows us by name. You're not a distant God, Father. Um, even the fact that we can call you Father is profound and so different to anything else this world offers. We pray that you shape us by your Spirit today. Holy Spirit, we pray that you, you make us more into the image of Jesus. Open our eyes to see the beauty and the worth and the value of the gospel. Reminds of truths that we might have heard many times before, and for some of us here today, hearing for the first time. Spirit, work powerfully in our lives, and we pray this for Jesus' fame in our lives. And all the God people said, Amen, Amen. Well, I don't know if you've ever done this before. I did this at the start of last year. I pulled my phone out, and I went on Instagram, right? And we've all done that before. But I went back to like my first like Instagram post. And I've had Instagram since 2011, so I was like going back a long way, kind of scrolling through and just seeing like, I was like, what did I post back you mean, like in year 12? I think it was in year 12 at the time. Um, and I've got two examples of some of the things I posted just for the hit and nostalgia. The first one will come up on the screen. That's a beach. You probably can't tell, right? This is back in the day when like you would kind of, you just chuck on like the default filter and you're like, this is it. Like I am, I've, I've mastered Instagram. I'm a photographer. Um, I even wrote beach just in case you didn't know. Um, that's actually Cronulla Beach from the Esplanade, and trust me, it looks better on the... F- it doesn't. It looks just as bad. Um, that's like the kind of first one that I did, and then my second photo that I ever posted um, was a bird. A bird it, there again, bird, right, just in case you don't know. Um, a bird in the tree, and I was like, this is it. You know, and like, I remember I lined this photo up. This is back before you could like, zoom in. This is like an iPhone 3G or something. And I was like, just try to get really close. And I, I was like, this is, I have a vision, and I've executed that vision, and this is it. Um, the only thing holding me back was the bad quality of the iPhone. But I remember, like, back, you know, Instagram back in the early days, it was really kicking off in 2011, and one of the first people I followed was a guy called Foster Huntington, right? And Foster Huntington was, a, like, a blogger, but he was a, a photographer, um, and he kind of, he really kicked off the van life movement. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of that. It's a bunch of people who... Anyway, moved into vans in the early 2000s, particularly post kind of the, glo- the global financial crisis in the States. Um, I mean, sold everything they had, moved into vans, went up to Portland and just kind of lived that life where they traveled around. And he really kind of kicked that off. And he used social media to kind of, I mean, build a name for himself. And what he did was he was in the fashion industry in New York, right? He was doing Patagonia, he was doing their, their marketing and for Calvin Klein. Um, he was the head of marketing for them, and he just got really fed up with the consumerism around him. Like, he looked at the life that was happening around him in New York, the high-flying job, 
He just thought, it's not for me. So he, he, he sold everything he owns. He bought a van, a um, Volkswagen from like the 60s, and he, he decked it out and like redid it all, and he, he moved up to Portland. And he just documented it all. And his Instagram was just beautiful photo after beautiful photo of like, I mean, beautiful mountains and vistas and just like living the free life. And I used to read his blog where it was just like, it was just him fishing all day. And he was obviously making millions of dollars off Instagram at the time. Um, but there was something about it. But what he did was he, he, he started a book. He wrote a book based on a blog where he asked the question, if your house is burning down, right, you wake up one morning or one night and like the fire alarm's going off and you've got like five minutes to get out of the house, his whole thing was, what would you grab? What are the things that are most valuable in your life that you would take with you? If your house is burning down, what would you save? And the, the blog, which became a book, and like heaps of people answered the question. Like he kind of compiled all these different answers, and people from all around the world had answers. Like, but they ranged from like you mean know, family photos or or childhood stuffed animals, like the the stuff they held dear. For some people, it was like super practical, it's like survival items. You know what I mean? Like I'll get my phone, I'll get like what else you need to survive really these days? Get, get your phone, that type of thing. Like it was just like, really practical. And for some people, it was like you mean pets, of course. Like you would save your pets. But the question was, like, what is the most valuable thing in your life? What are the things that you would, you would just grab and run out of the house with? And I thought to myself, for me, like, what would it be? Like my wedding ring, which I'm not wearing today. <laughs> That's really precious to me. Um, <laughs> believe it or not. Um, we have a 160-year-old like, family Bible at home as well. Like, it's been passed down throughout the family. Like, it's really precious. Like, you like, disintegrate if you touch it, but I'll try and grab that. My, uh, my grandfather, I mean, he's a watch here for his 21st birthday, which is like 100 years ago. But so it's like something really precious, really valuable to me. So they're the things I would grab. Uh, it, it's a good mental exercise to go through. Like, what are the things that are on your, uh, on your metaphorical bedside table that you keep close? What are the things that are most valuable and precious to you? What are the things that you hold on to and you just want to keep if everything else is lost? What are the things that you wouldn't give up anything else for? Because often the value that we place on something and the, it would, like, shows what we'll do for it, right? It shows what we'll give up for it. And this is often the way that Jesus spoke about the kingdom of God. That finding the kingdom of God was like finding something of incredible value. Something so valuable that you'd just be willing to leave everything else behind. And that's what we said this morning. We... we we see Jesus tell, uh, tell two very short parables on what it means to have the kingdom of God, what it means to have Jesus himself, and what it means to have him as the most precious and valuable thing in your life. I'm just going to read it out again. Take a look at verses 44 to 46 with me. This is what Jesus says. He goes, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered it up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all he had and bought it. So two very similar stories, but yet very distinct. Like they're making the same point, but they're, they're quite different. Um, the man in the first story, he, he finds a treasure randomly, right? He just stumbles upon this treasure. Like, we don't know exactly why he's in this field. The passage doesn't say. Maybe he was, he was a farm worker, right? He was hired to, to work hard, work the plow in the field. Maybe he was taking a shortcut home. He's coming home from work, coming home from the office in the ancient Near East, walking home, and he's like, here's a shortcut through this field, and he's going to go through it. 
Maybe he was like burying a body. I don't, we don't know, right? We don't know what he's doing. But the thing is, he, he uncovers this, this, like, this precious treasure, this priceless treasure. And like, like, come on, who hasn't dreamt of finding treasure, right? I don't know if you're like me, right? You look at the people on like Cronulla Beach or whatever beach you go to, like we live near Cronulla, and like you have the, the guys with metal detectors, and you're like, that's kind of cringe. Like, what are you doing? It's embarrassing that you're doing this in front of people. Um, no offense if anyone does that. Um, <laughs> But, but I read this story about a guy called uh, Terry Herbert. He was in the UK about 10 years ago. And he had a metal detector in his neighbor's backyard, like, you mean, farmland. And he was just, like, just looking, I can't remember what he was looking for, but he stumbled upon, like, treasure from, like, the 15th century worth $8 million, right? And he just found this treasure in his backyard. And you look at that now and you're like, who's cringe now, right? He just got rich. Um, but it wasn't like that back in the ancient Near East. Back then, it wasn't uncommon for people to, to bury their valuables like that, right? They didn't have banks. You know, they weren't investing their money into, like, Apple stock. Like, what they did was they, they, they buried it and hid it. I mean, there's, there's real danger that, like, where you live could just get invaded by an invading army or political strife could come up and you have to flee your area. So people would bury their treasure so no one else would find it and it would get lost. They would hide it somewhere in their house or somewhere in their lands. And the point is that many people in Jesus' day, right, they would, they would have heard Jesus tell this parable and that they would have lent in. They would have got excited. Cause it's a real like, reality to be able to find treasure like this. So Jesus talks to this man who finds a treasure in the field and we're not told if he, if he finds the whole thing, maybe he just found part of it, right? Maybe he just found like a little pot with silver coins in it or gold coins in it. And he realizes that Someone here has buried something really valuable. And what does he do in response to find this valuable treasure? Like he, he liquidates everything. All his assets, everything he owns, he sells off all his possessions, and it, he essentially impoverishes himself so he can buy this field. And the thing that strikes me most when I read this passage the first time is that Jesus says he did this in his joy. Like normally if you had to walk away from everything he owned, you're going to lose everything. Like you, you don't have this elated feeling about yourself. Like you'd be devastated. But this man, is, he's elated with joy because the treasure he's gaining is far more valuable than anything he's walking away from. And this is what Jesus says, it's like finding the kingdom of God. And the second parable, it, it's similar. Um, but this time, it focuses on a pearl. And, and pearls at this time are extremely valuable. Like they're rare. In the economy at the time, they, they, they sold for a, a hefty price. History shares, I was reading this, history shares that Cleopatra, obviously a few centuries later, or millennia later, she had a pearl that was worth about 25, I think it's 25 million denarii. Um, and denarii is a day's wage, right, at the time. So the rough estimate of the pearl she had was in the billions of dollars in our context. Uh, no jewel would be worth that much like, in the economy these days. But back then, like, it, was, it was possible. And the man sees a value in this pearl, so he, he sells everything. He sells his car, he sells his iPhone, he sells his house, he sells his, his expensive clothes, that photo album with the family photos, he sells that, doesn't want that anymore. The wedding ring, gets rid of that. He gives it all up because he, he sees this thing, this pearl of, of, of great worth and value. So we have these two people, right? Jesus tells these two people. One's a, a blue-collar worker, one's a white-collar worker. Um, one has relatively little, one has quite a lot. 
One who, who wasn't looking for the treasure, and the other one who was obsessed with finding something like that. One was poor, one was common, the other was rich and educated. But both of them encountered something of such value that it makes everything else in their life look worthless. And real quick, it's, it's important to say that this parable isn't a case study in business ethics, right? Like you, might read, you might hear particularly the first story and you're like, really? he, he knew there was something valuable there that the, the person who owned the land didn't know, so he like kind of manipulated his way to get it. Like what, what's happening here? Obviously Jesus isn't giving this lesson about business ethics. What, it, what the parables do, and I know I said this last week, it's Jesus, is, he explains an extended metaphor to get a simple point across. A simple, profound truth. The, the, the thrust of these parables, the two parables is this, is that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God and the gospel is of infinite worth and value and it demands everything of all of us. And we see how this plays out in the two short parables in a few ways. And just a quick note, I'm going to use the kingdom of God and the gospel kind of interchangeable throughout my sermon. So when I say the kingdom of God or I say the gospel, I'm essentially talking about the same thing um, as we go throughout this passage. And the second is, we'll be jumping around a little bit, we'll be using this parable as a foundation to kind of point it to deep theological truths. And the first one that we see is that there's beauty and value of the gospel. We see the, the, the beauty and the value of the gospel. Both of these people have an epiphany. Their, their eyes are opened. They're illumined and they see the value and the beauty that other people who are looking at the same thing don't see. They understand that there's something of value and beauty that other people miss. They have the insight. They have a revelation. Their, their eyes are opened and they understand. Because as humans, we love beautiful things, right? Like we're drawn to beautiful things. Uh, middle of last year, Bray and I went over seas for a month and we went back to the homeland, the motherland, the UK. Um, and as you do, as we do, when we go to the UK, we go to museums, because I love that type of stuff. And we went to the Tower of London. And we got, there, like, we got there super early, like one of the first people there. We waited outside just to kind of get ahead of the crowds. And at the Tower of London is the Crown Jewels. And we, like, you, you, I mean, you walk through like, the, the, the tower, it's like a castle, it's like a fortress. You go through and you get in line. You, you kind of go into this climate-controlled room. It's like perfect lighting. I'd love to live there, by the way. It's like beautiful. Um, like, it's dark. It's got MP5s like, guarding like, this, the treasure. And you, you walk in and you just see it in this dark room lit up behind glass, um, I mean, the crown jewels. They're shiny. Like, I'm, not, I'm not a gems type of guy, right? I'm not into that jewelry, but there's something about it that was beautiful and attractive to me. I just wanted to look at it and stare at it. It's something that I was drawn to it. Because we love to be drawn to stuff that's beautiful. I looked up how much it was worth. It was estimated over $10 billion worth of like, precious stones and history there. And in a similar way, a couple of weeks later, we'll, we were um, in Switzerland. We went to the top of um, like the tallest peak you can get to in Switzerland. And you look out over creation, it's like it feels like you're at the top of the world. You see all these valleys, you see so much. And it's beautiful. But the mountains are beautiful. There's something about it, you just want to stare at it. Like you just want to, like there's literally deck chairs in the snow. And you can literally just stare out over this valley. And there's something about it that as humans we're just drawn to it. Why do I say this? Like, it's because there's something beautiful about the gospel. There's something, about, uh, something beautiful about Jesus that sometimes we just miss. And you might feel a bit, little bit weird hearing me describe Jesus as beautiful. But there's something attractive and beautiful about Jesus. 
Um, and not in the same sense that we often use. We often use beauty and attractiveness as like the outward appearance type thing. We're drawn to someone's outward appearance. But the Bible doesn't describe Jesus in this way. Actually, in Isaiah 53, he describes Jesus as like pretty average looking, right? But the, the prophets described, or Isaiah describes Jesus as literally, they literally say there's nothing really appealing about him outwardly. There's nothing about Jesus that screamed King of Kings, Treasure of the Universe, Savior King. But there's something about Jesus, a person that's beautiful. And roughly so, we, we love to focus on Jesus as the function. That's through him that we have forgiveness of sins, new life, and eternal hope. And yet there's something beautiful about Jesus, the person. I remember the first time I was reminded of this. Uh, it was my first year of Bible college, actually. It was 2017. And the first year of Bible college, did something called pastoral theology. Um, and I was like, oh, so keen, right? I was like an eager student, all in. I was there. The principal was taking it. He had like 40 years, probably more. I don't want to make him sound older than he is. At the time, he had like 40, 50 years of like ministry experience. Um, I was like, I'm just going to glean so much from him. And one of the first things he taught us, right? He was saying that, you mean, people from our tribe, we're really good at focusing on Jesus as the function, the function for salvation, and it's beautiful. It's profound. But we miss at times, there's something about Jesus, the person that's beautiful. There's something about Jesus that prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners, like those at society at the time were just cast out, had nothing to do with them. They wanted to spend time with him. Like what, what, what was it about the person of Jesus that people saw him and wanted to have an encounter with him. Like people had very different lives to him. They had different jobs, different backgrounds, different moral compasses, different religious beliefs, different worldviews. They were different. But what was it about Jesus that they found attractive and beautiful? Like what was it that when Jesus met the woman at the well in the heat of the day, what was it that she wanted to spend time with Jesus and open up to him about her life? What was it that made our short brother Zacchaeus get down from that tree and want to have a meal with Jesus and spend time with him? Like, what was it that made a group of ordinary fishermen? This one, I always think about this. When Jesus called the disciples, they're, they're ordinary dudes. They're tradesmen fishing on the Sea of Galilee. What was it that made these men want to give up everything to follow Jesus and spend time with him and live their lives with him. But these people didn't know what we know. They didn't have, like, they, they knew glimpses of who Jesus was. They didn't have the full picture like we have the full picture. And yet there's something beautiful and precious about Jesus that drew people to him as a person, not just the function. Like, it's his, it's his character, it's his grace towards people, it's his compassion towards people, it's his empathy towards people, it's his steadfast love that he showed to people. There's something about the person of Jesus that we miss. And like I said, we're, we're so good at finding the beauty in the function that sometimes we, we forget there's just beauty in spending time with Jesus. There's just beauty in the person of Jesus. Like as, as people who want to follow Jesus, we need to fall in love with him. We need to fall in love with him as a person, as well as falling in love with him with what he does for us. Like forgiveness for sins, eternal life with him. Like what he did on the cross is beautiful. But it's not the full picture of who Jesus is. Like the two men in these parables, we need to see the beauty and the value and how precious the, um, the gospel and Jesus are. We need to see 
and have the epiphany and have our, our eyes illumined and see that revelation of the value and the beauty of who Jesus is as a person and the gospel. And seeing the gospel is the most precious and most valuable thing in our lives. It's, it's seeing the gospel is that thing that when the metaphorical house is burning down, that when the world is crumbling around us, that when we feel like we have nothing else and we're like just at the end of our tether, that it's seeing that the gospel is all we need, that Jesus is all we need. And finally, see the gospel and Jesus and the kingdom, it, it's just worth everything, is what Jesus says in this parable. Uh, we see the result of both these parables is that in their joy they give up everything. Both of these men give up everything. The two men understand that there is no halfway in getting this valuable treasure. You can dip your feet in. It's not something you just like, kind of test out for the fun of it. There's nothing about trying out or kind of the, the incremental buying in. Like these guys are all or nothing. They're going to risk everything. They're going to have to risk everything and lose everything to get this valuable treasure. And they must have lost a lot. Like in these short verses, it kind of like blows over the fact that they sold all their stuff. But they would have lost a lot. Stuff that meant stuff to them. Stuff that was precious to them. But they were willing to do it. They were, they were willing to go all the way because they saw the beauty of Jesus. They saw the beauty of the gospel and the kingdom of God. And here's the thing, right? That to follow Jesus, you have to be willing to sell everything. Let me just say that again. To, to follow Jesus, you have to be willing to sell everything. Now, I'm not saying that to become a Christian, you have to sell everything, right? That's not biblical. You don't find that anywhere in the Bible. It's not saying that you have to do this to get this. But when we, when we see who Jesus is, when we, when we realize the depth of the gospel, like we have to be willing. Like at that time came, we have to be willing to sell stuff, to give it all up just for Jesus. Like when we enter the kingdom of God, when we, we surrender our lives to Jesus and follow him, like we see that there's nothing in this world that's more important than that. It's saying that if, if you have a choice between you mean, this or Jesus or that and Jesus, like it will always be Jesus. I will suffer the loss of anything if it means keeping Jesus. Uh, it's seeing Jesus as the most valuable thing, the most beautiful, the most precious thing ever and being willing to sell everything to keep him. It's looking at your life and everything in your life and saying that nothing can compare to who Jesus is and having him. An example of an area that I think is going to be hard for us uh, in the 21st century, and if it's not hard for you now, it's going to get harder for us as people who follow Jesus, is to publicly identify ourselves as Christian. Being scared to let people at work or at the gym or on whatever team you're on or the mother's group or the work site or the uni to know you're a Christian. It, it's not talking about, like, I'm, not, I'm not talking about being weird or like, cringy, right? Like you just force Jesus in every conversation. Like someone mentions something vaguely, loosely, you can get a conversation about it, you, you shove it in. Like, I'm not talking about that at all. But if there's times that you're never willing, uh, willingly to publicly identify as follower of Jesus, then I think it's safe to say that your image is more important to you than Jesus. You're essentially saying that if it's a choice between your image and what people think about you and Jesus, you'd hold on to your image. If you're not willing to sell your image, like sell your image, so to speak, if you're not willing to give it up, then you're not willing to sell everything. 
Another way to think about this is if we put an if onto following Jesus, you mean I'll follow Jesus if this happens. I'll follow Jesus if I get this from this. I'll follow Jesus or obey him if, if this happens. Like in other words, there's something that you're not willing to sell. You're still holding on to something else if you're not all in on Jesus. And I, if you stop and think about that, like if you really stop to, to stop and ponder and think about it, like is that reasonable? But there's nothing more salvific, there's no one more caring or nurturing, there's no one more eternal, and there's nothing more beautiful and precious than Jesus. The the kingdom of God demands everything of all of us. It demands every fiber of our being. To follow Jesus is is taking up our cross daily. It's surrendering our lives to him and following following him daily to the best of our ability. And, And the men in this parable do it with joy. It's in joy that they consider Jesus of more of more worth and value than anything in this world. It's a, it's a joy that they sell everything because they know what's to come. They know that the future kingdom to come is, is far better than anything this world offers. Like we live lives, like as followers of Jesus, we're to live lives just looking to the future. This is what Paul did, and that's why he can say in Romans 8.18, he says this, he says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. I just want to read that one more time. Romans 8, 18. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. Isn't that profound that someone can say that? Now, Paul was, he was beaten up. He was stoned. He lost friends. Like his closest friends, he lost them. He wrestled with anxiety. Like he lost his academic standing and reputation. And he says, I'll look at all that. I'll look at all that around me. And he goes, it's not worth comparing. It's not worth comparing to what I'm going to get one day. And I remember reading this, and I'm like, how does Paul do this? I mean, like, it's one thing for us to like, be like, yeah, like, I'd love to. How do you get to that point where you, you do that? You, you can boldly say that in light of losing everything. Like, and the Bible, like, in that passage, he says, he considers. Some translations that you might have say he counts up. He, he, he stops and he considers and he ponders the gospel. He stops and he thinks about the immeasurable worth of knowing Jesus and being known by Jesus. And people aren't born with this type of faith. But this is a spiritual discipline. This is something that you, you need to work on and refine. Something that you need to, to, to grow in and build yourself up in. It's considering the future kingdom and the beauty of Jesus and the gospel every single day. Like when you wake up in the morning and your, your two feet touch the outside of the bed, it, it's stopping and thinking, just the beauty of the gospel. Like it sounds, it sounds cheesy, but it's that type of stuff. It's the discipline, it's the, the repetitive stuff. When you, when you lay your head down at night and the anxieties of the day and the tiredness of the day is weighing on you, it, it's stopping and thinking about the immeasurable worth and value and beauty of the gospel. Because when we, when we look at that, when we see that, everything else just pales in comparison. It's looking at the beauty of who Jesus is and what he did, and it's, it's doing that until you, you sink into your, every fiber of your soul that nothing can be compared to him. That nothing is worth losing this. I'll lose everything else in this life if it means I get to hold on to this. And if it's like me, like, it's, it's repenting for our lack of love for Jesus. 
Like, I failed to love Jesus all the time. I need to stop. I need to repent and ask that the Spirit helps me. It's repenting when I, when I choose the riches of this world over Him. Like, when we treat Jesus like housing insurance, right? Like, we fall into this all the time. I mean, yeah, you might have housing insurance. You actually shove it in the drawer. It's there just in case the fire burns down. Again, common thread throughout the sermon, burning house. But like you, mean, you, you might pull it out when something happens. And sometimes we treat Jesus like that. He's there. You mean, I can pull him out on like, Tuesday night for GC, Wednesday, uh, Sunday for church. If stuff comes up, that's why I'll pull it out then. But like, he's not everything to all of us. He's not, every, he's not everything to us. We, we treat Jesus like that, but we need to get to the point where it saturates all over our lives, every fiber of who we are, that the gospel is the most precious thing in this whole universe. I just want to finish up by uh, telling a story that I think just kind of summarizes this passage as well. So I'll invite the band up as we come to a close. So if you were to go to Cairo, right, which my in-laws are going to in like two weeks, so maybe I should tell them to hit this up, but if you were to go to Cairo, there's a small, dusty grave in an out-of-the-way location, I think it's like literally like in a back alley. You would never realize it was there if you were looking for it. And there's a small tombstone with a marking, um, the spot that identifies the final resting place of a guy called William Borden. Uh, he's the heir to a, a company in the States called Borden Milk. Uh, it used to be a massive company. It's still huge. Like I looked up before, they made they had a revenue of like $1.8 billion last year. So they're still, they're still, they're still fine. They're doing well. Um, so it's a big state, uh, company in the States. But in the 1920s, it was like huge, right? It was like a powerhouse. One of America's largest companies. And, and Borden was the heir apparent to this company. Like his dad, his grandfather founded it. He was the heir apparent. Um, and he was offered that, I mean, when he finished uni, so he went to Yale University, graduated in 1909. And when he finished, he got offered to take the reins, to have this whole company to himself. I mean, to have the, the power of this company. But what he did, he became a Christian at university at Yale. And while I was at University, he, he heard a, I think he heard a, a gospel message and he, he got given a Bible and he wrote in that Bible, he wrote the words, no rivals, after he became a Christian. And the whole thing was that there's, there's no rivals, is in this, there's nothing in this world that compares to the gospel. There's no rival to the, the beauty and the worth of the gospel. And after he graduated from college, again, his family was like pressuring him. Like, I mean, he had this Ivy League education. He had the, the reins to like the the milk version of Apple at the time, and they're like, you're going to take over this. This is up to you. And he, he actually felt called to go to Cairo to preach the gospel to Muslims. So he gave it up. And when he was having all this pressure from his family, he wrote these words in his Bible. So he wrote no rivals at first, then second he wrote no refusals. And his whole thing was, when God's calling me to do something, when I feel God putting on my heart to go to a people, he goes, I'm not going to refuse. I want to go do it. And so he did. So he went to Egypt, and only after four months of zealous ministry, he contracted spinal meningitis, and he died at the age of 25 on a ship en route to get medical help. And while on this ship, someone asked him right before he died, so he was on this ship with like a bunch of people, and someone asked him how he felt about his decisions he made in life. Giving up his Ivy League education, giving up all the money and power he could ever have, the comfort, the security he would have had. And they asked him, like, how do you feel about doing all this? And he simply said to them, no regrets. 
Known as Tombstone in Cairo is a brief description of his sacrifices for the kingdom of God and for the Muslim people, followed by the simple phrase. It says this, it goes from, apart, apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. So to the outside world, people looked at what he was doing. They looked at the decisions he made, the life he lived. Who would have thought he was silly? Dare I say, the people would have thought he was crazy and insane. But he's saying, when you understand the value of who Jesus is, if that kind of life just makes sense. Like he, he's the treasure in the field worth leaving everything for if it takes to follow him. And this is what it means to become a Christian, to practice the way of Jesus. It means no rivals. It's, it's, it's knowing that there's nothing in this world that compares to the beauty of the kingdom of God. It means no refusals. It, it's living for him. It's, it's laying our lives down for him to the best of our ability leading on God's grace towards us when we do fall short. And I promise you, I, I, I promise you this, right, that one day you, you'll look back in your life after you follow Jesus. I promise you, you'll say, no regrets. And that, to finish up our time together, as we, as we worship, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. I think there's no better way to, to ponder and to remember the, the beauty and the worth of the kingdom of God than participating in the Lord's Supper together. So if you're here today and you, you, you call yourself a follower of Jesus, uh, we want to invite you to, to join the Lord's Supper with us. And as we, as we take the elements, we take the, the bread and the, the juice, it, it's looking back to what Jesus did for us on the cross. It's looking back to our, our brokenness and our, our sinfulness in the garden as humanity, knowing that we need salvation, we need Him. And it's going back to the cross to see what he, what he did for us, for you. Like he, he had you in mind as he took that, to go now on the cross. And it's looking back to, it's looking to now, as a family, as we, as we take the Lord's Supper, like we're taking it with brothers and sisters in Christ. As we look around, we're going to be spending eternity with each other, which you might get excited about that or you might get nervous about that. But that's the fact, we're spending eternity with one another. And we, we look to the future. We look to the future hope that we have that, that one day Jesus is coming back. And to be the great wedding banquet of the Lamb, we're going to have a feast. We're going to be feasting next Sunday for our third birthday, but we're going to be feasting even more so in eternity when Jesus comes back at the great wedding supper of the Lamb, together, reunited. There's going to be no more crying, no more mourning, no more pain. And that's, that's the kingdom of God that we look forward to when we say the words of Paul said in Romans 8, 18. So as we take the Lord's Supper, just, just ponder those things. I'm going to pray for us and I'm going to sing. Father, we, yeah, we, we thank you so much that there is no regrets that we're going to have in life following you. That as we lay on our deathbed or you return, we're going to look back at our lives and see as a life spent for the right things. Father, thank you, and help us see the, the beauty and the worth and the glory of your kingdom. Father, as we live in a, a society where there's all pressures to, to achieve certain things or to have certain things, Father, we, we, we want to know and we want to feel and believe and live out the fact that the gospel is all we need. Holy Spirit, when we, when we feel dismayed, when we, when we question what we're doing, Father, by your Spirit, just remind us that we're living for you. Father, I pray for those here today who, who need that reminder. 
Lord, we start off the year, help us be disciplined in reminding ourselves and in your word being saturated and through prayer by the fact that following you is the best thing we can do. Father, when we fall short, when we don't meet the mark, Father, thank you for this grace. But Father, this week as we go out, help us see the beauty of Jesus. Help us see the value of Him. Remind us, Father, even now. And Father, we pray this so we can serve you, so we can live for you, and so we can make you known. Holy Spirit, empower us to do this, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.